Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 12 of series 3 of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. Big shout out to Ollie and all the team there in the Shire Baron Cafe in Clarny. We really appreciate the support you've given us. Uh, it doesn't go unnoticed and again, thanks a million guys. This week we are delighted to be joined by Arabian Radio Network, Deputy Programme Director and co-host of The Big Breakfast on Dubai 92, John O'Hayes. Prior to moving to Dubai, the Limerick man had his own show on Sprint Southwest, having previously worked with Live 95 FM. Hayes is also a DJ and MC for events throughout Dubai. There is no doubt we have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. Hi, Jono. Thanks for taking time out to come on Inside View Podcast. I really appreciate Absolute it. Absolute pleasure, pleasure, pleasure to join you. I know you've, you've a lot on at the moment, although it's supposed to be a quiet period of the, the year for you, but you're... You're still going five nights a week. Yeah, look, it's like as a like it's been busy, and I'm surprised. I'm I'm surprised, kind of every year. Normally, we used to be of the of the ilk that uh, during the summer you'd pretty much take at least a month off and just go on vacation and you know get out of the country. That seems to be gone now completely. Even like obviously, I've been here quite a while. Like the changes in Ramadan and everything else that have gone on, it's just it's now a totally different vibe and the summer is just as busy it is during the winter except everything's obviously indoors so I think there's been just a bit of a change in what people do where people go if they leave the country if they stay around uh, in the last couple of years so it's nice to see it's good to see a city that keeps going pretty much 24 7 365 days a year it's it's nice that the tourism doesn't let up and that the people seem to stay around a lot longer yeah you're here about 10 years am I right in saying that uh yeah 10 uh actually no i'm heading in for 12 years i came here at the end of 2010 so yeah heading in for 12 years it kind of doesn't feel like that i stopped off for a year was the plan i'm like i'll head to australia like every other irish person <laughs> ever was going to australia and i thought yeah that seems like something i could do i couldn't get like that across the line with my folks um like i'm, I'm quite connected with my family and like i'd worked abroad in greece and in spain and a few other places before djing and Australia just seemed like a, a bridge too far. So they weren't really okay with that. Um, Dubai, a job opportunity in Dubai where it was working for McGettigan's. And uh, my da- I said it to my dad and said it to my mom. My mom would be kind of more about do whatever you want. My dad was more like, Dubai, yeah, that's that's close. That's about eight hours away from here. And so it was agreed. And it was like, okay, well, there seems like it's a lot closer to home. I didn't know where it was on a map. Like I had to look up a map and be like, it's like somewhere here, somewhere. So I, like, I wasn't sure where it was. And moved here for a year and then just never left. And we, we kind of touched on it there a few minutes ago, but the evolution of from you arrived to now, what has been the biggest changes? You kind of touched on summer and, and Ramadan. Yeah, like I think, first of all, when I arrived here, Ramadan was a much different experience than it is now. And and I loved it then. And obviously the change that the tourism that it still brings now is is also incredible. But then it was a case that everything was was pretty much closed. The shops were open in the malls, but there was no place to get food. No food courts were open, nothing like that. And then it was uh, bars weren't open until I think they were open late at 
not but again no entertainment no music anything like that but they were open after sunset so around 9 p.m they'd open and they'd be closed by 1 a.m again and the evolution of that has been pretty impressive in a relatively short period of time where it went from the next couple of years you gradually started getting a couple of restaurants opened in the mall a couple of standalone restaurants started opening up then after that as well licenses were given to allow uh venues i think it might have been the world cup i think it was the world cup was the first time when they said listen it's falling during Ramadan. You will be allowed to open for it. You will be allowed to serve um, alcohol during the day. And then I think just gradually it, it kind of got a little bit less, a little bit less to where it is this year where it's pretty much unnoticeable that it's Ramadan. And like, it's, it's been, it's been a change. It's been much to my dad's dismay. He's kind of gone, you know, what's happened? What's happened Ramadan? Why has it changed so much? And, and that's, I think there's a lot of links between Irish culture and what, what we as a nationality and what we as a nation, how family orientated we are and, uh, and how we like our culture, we love our culture, and how a lot of the people uh, in the region, certainly like a lot of Arab nationalities, will be family-centric and family-oriented as well. I think there's a lot of similarities between the two. So from his point of view, he was like, hey, like, why has it changed so much? Why is it different? Um, and I think it's, it's phenomenal tourism-wise. It's done, it's done amazing things for the country and for, for Dubai as well as a city. Uh, it's been impressive to see, but it, it, has been a, it has been a big change. That's definitely one of the biggest changes I've noticed. And what's your feeling over the next three to four months? Do you think there's going to be a massive influx of people for the World Cup? Look, I think we're in a hub. We'll, I know that the guys from Fly Dubai, uh, I work with them, and they're talking about how they're going to have a shuttle service that's going to be operating out of Dubai. I think Dubai is going to see this huge influx because here is the playground of the Middle East. So to, to come here, I think, is the best possible thing to do. You get a holiday in Dubai, you go to the World Cup, you travel back here again afterwards. And they'll have it'll be almost like a bus service operating daily. And the turnaround time, I think, in Qatar is going to be so quick on the airport turnaround that people will be getting in, getting out. It'll be very much almost like a, a Ryanair-type situation, fly in, fly out uh, for the matches. So, yeah, I think I think we'll do well out of it here. I know there's a lot, of, a lot planned as well in the region for, for people to go and watch the matches who haven't got tickets but so far it seems from what I see on Instagram everyone's posting about getting tickets even people who don't even follow football are going along to the World Cup it should be great crack as we say in Ireland uh, should be good yeah. crack here and um, hopefully hopefully look let's uh, let's bring it back and I'd like to just gain a quick insight into what was life like for you here in, in Dubai during COVID because I know it was quite strict here for the first 68 weeks Look, I watched with joy, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I watched with joy considering the experience we were having here versus what was going on in Europe. I think it couldn't have been managed any better than it was managed here. I felt really lucky and really fortunate to, to, to work here during that time. I was speaking to my parents every couple of days, um, and they were just going from lockdown to lockdown to it's more strict, it's more stringent. Public transport is cancelled. Nobody could go to work. I mean, I was fortunate that I, I, I got to go to work during lockdown. We had a, an exemption letter and we got to go to work during lockdown. So that in itself, I almost feel like I didn't get the experience that a lot of people got because I was up every day. Uh, I was traveling to work. I was on the roads. They were empty. Um, I had an exemption letter so I could go to work. Uh, and, and to be fair, I didn't notice it that much. But on speaking to my parents, certainly when we were, we were out of lockdown, and they were only starting into what was becoming a more strict lockdown. And I remember it happening because it was just before Paddy's weekend. It was the 14th of March here. <laughs> and uh, McGettigans had organized like a boat party and we were all out in this boat party. And it was in the, it was in the ether that you know, there was this thing that was happening in China and it was kind of starting into Europe and nobody really knew what was going on. And there were some cases in the UAE. And then we just got a notification that the boat had to turn around because everything was going to be shutting down that evening. And it was for a period of two weeks. And we thought, um, Maybe two weeks. I think that's be realistic. You know, that'll break it and we'll be back to normal again. 
Like we had no idea what we were in store for. I was, I was lucky. A lot of stuff, a lot of client stuff remained online for me. Um, I mean, it took some time to get the products honed, but once we did, we went, uh, we went and started doing quizzes and bingo and you know, you name it, whatever award ceremonies, everything was moved to online. But I felt pretty lucky that um, we were given, I think here at a bit more artistic license to be like, you've got creative companies who are going, listen, I want to still do this. I don't know exactly how to do it online. Come up with the idea. Can we run with it? And we still did. So it ended up being, been actually for me, it was, it was, it was fine. It was a different experience. And even when we got back into venues again, we couldn't interact with people. It was behind screens. So everything was still online. So it was like doing it on Facebook live or on zoom, but, but in a bar, in a venue. And I think we were, again, we were lucky here. We don't realize how lucky we are. The live music scene and the entertainment scene of which you know, I'm heavily involved in came back in a shot. Like we were, we were back on, we had live music back yet yeah, behind screens, but it's better than no music within four months after our first lockdown. Yeah. We went back into it again when the numbers soared up the following uh, January, February, I think it was. But again, I think we were just, we, we were lucky that it was so short and so brief that we were, that we were off, uh, that we were off the grid. Yeah, because I was actually in Ireland then, and it was uh, fairly testing for for the whole period, really, in and out of lockdown, little glimmer of hope and and whatnot. But at least we we got through it, and I was able to to get get on a get on a plane to Dubai. <laughs> um, but the, the in regards to the face to face quizzes and online events, how did you find that you know changing over from interacting with people to doing it virtually? Look, I suppose the fortunate thing with that is like radio is, is a medium where you don't get to see your audience and a lot of the time when I do any live events I'll block out the audience as in I'll pretend they're not there and pretend that it's on the radio because that's a lot easier to do so I think that's probably that's what made it easier I'm not saying that it wasn't nerve-wracking because initially you're like there might be 700 people on a zoom meeting or a team's call and you're jumping onto that to host something you can't see them you can't see the interaction you have no idea if any joke that you make is falling completely flat on its face you've got none of that bounce back but then think about it pretty much the same on radio you don't have any idea what the audience are thinking you don't have any idea if that's gone down well or not you just have to power through it and talk to yourself which is good there was like obviously there was always two of us hosting events so it was a lot easier to have bounce off of but at the same time it was like oh, we've no idea if this is going down well or not and we have to wait for feedback and you're only going on the comments that are inside so you've got no idea how good bad or indifferent it's actually going you know uh, you said you have to pretend to, you know, block out, uh, block out your audience. That's what you do when you're doing live events. When that initially started, when you started that back in your, your late teens, um, what was the process to, to visually block them out? Because obviously it's probably second nature now to you. Um, now it's easier, but like you still stand in front of an audience and you still like, I gotta be honest with you. It's like that. You're just like, I'm not okay with this. So sometimes there was Dutch courage. I gotta be like, I gotta be honest. Sometimes there has been that. Other times uh, it's been, there was actually a, there was a girl that I, I was my boss at one stage called Fiona, who um, initially gave me the job in radio in Dubai after seeing me doing quiz nights and was like, hey, do you, have you ever worked in radio? And I was like, yeah, I have. And she's like, do you want to do it again? I'm like, yeah, I do. So she'd say, it was like, every time you switch on the microphone at work, just picture yourself standing in the center of the cricket stadium in Dubai or, or like Wembley, basically, and then stack it on top of itself three times. And that's the audience that you're speaking to at any given time. Like on any given time, when you switch on that microphone, there's about 150,000 people listening and, you know, upwards to 600,000 people it really depends on how good of a powder day it is. And when she said that, I was like, that's 
terrifying. But at the same time, she was like, if you can do it there when you're switching on the microphone, you can do it in front of a in front of an audience as well, because there's far less people than 150,000 going to be standing in front of you regardless. So it's it is a block out thing, or it's look at the first like two rows. I think the biggest gig we've done recently, and 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 probably ever to be fair, was Expo, the closing ceremony for Expo, and Christina Aguilera. And that was like a hundred thousand people, maybe more than a hundred thousand people. I don't know the final figure for that, but it, you know, it's it's people as far as the eye could see, just people, people for miles and miles and miles. And uh, that was one of those ones where I thought I'm going to have to just block everything out. See the first three rows of people, like pick on them is almost like what exactly what people do in stand up comedy. You pick on the first three rows because they're the people you can see, and then you know have the interaction with them. To be fair, a lot of the time there's lights in your face. You don't you can't see a lot, but you can still see that there's like people everywhere so you have to just kind of block it out and be like okay i'll just speak to these people who i can see right in front of me and i'll make a connection with them and 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 then just just power through it i'm not making out that it's easy because it's not and even still when i do gigs like there's nerves beforehand there's a lot of nerves like where i pretend like everything's fine but actually inside you're like blood pressures to the roof and you're like this is not i'm not okay with this i'm not okay with this but you just got you just got to get on with it people kind of expect you to be fine with it and not to have nerves but i'm pretty pretty confident that everyone I've spoke to be it singer um stand-up comedian whatever it is before they go on stage have the world's worst nerves and that doesn't go away and actually to be fair it's kind of what makes it exciting is like there that's the payoff almost for your your nerves that you have in advance is the fact that you get to go on the stage and then talk it's like okay it actually went okay and I think so far it's not really been too many disaster stories really like not not massive ones like really to be fair so they obviously must have been one or two tough situations at the start, was there? Stories? So there was one that we did. There was one that we did and it was it was big and it would have been the biggest gig up until that point that I'd hosted. It was Blended um, Music Festival was happening in Dubai. It was a gig that used to happen every year and they'd bring over acts. They brought over Backstreet Boys and, and Mel C. So you have a Spice Girl and the Backstreet Boys. And, and we knew it was going to be huge, but it sold out in like a day. If we'd done three more gigs, you could have sold them out as well. So we were to go on stage before the Backstreet Boys and introduce them. And, and obviously they're the big act. So it was, it was terrifying. We know we'd interviewed the day during the day we'd interviewed like Mel C and stuff. So we'd done all that stuff, all that was out of the way. And that was all like second fiddle to the fact that we were going to be standing on stage in front of everybody. Just as we're about to walk onto the stage, the, the girl who I still am fortunate enough to work with Nats, I looked at her and was like, I need to poop. She's like, you can't, she's like, you can't do this. And I'm like, I gotta, I gotta go to the toilet. Like this is, I'm in an urgent situation here. And she's like, no, 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 no. Like we have like seconds before we're going on the stage. I'm like, you're going to have to tell them to pause. So I ran off and like, luckily normally at any concert that's like right beside the stage, there is a toilet. And I'm like, oh my God, this is a disaster. Like this is all of my worst fears coming through. And, uh, and I had to run off and I like ran back to the stage again. And she's like, we've had to pause them like back there. Like they're waiting for us to go on and introduce them. And I'm like, can't help that. So Has to be done, like, like, <laughs> I was like, can't help it. Sorry. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's been, there's been a few hairy situations, but I mean, luckily nothing we didn't always when you go on stage, I think you like, you switch on, like you switch on a different product and that's, that's what people see. And that's what people get to experience. And so from their point of view, nothing's gone wrong. Nothing's delayed. Nobody knows any different, but behind the scenes, a lot of stuff normally goes on that nobody knows about <laughs> probably for the best. <laughs> and do you ever like, do you have a routine that, you know, say in advance of these big gigs or or gigs in general that you may talk to yourself a couple hours in advance or before you step on stage that it's game time now 
Look, I guess it's not like the from my point. A lot of people do, but like I don't. My thing that I could do is just block it out, do something completely different. And normally, we're lucky. We maybe have a show or something beforehand that we're doing up until the point where we're about to go on stage. So we're normally doing something else beforehand. Um, so normally, no, I don't like. I try and just block it out until I absolutely have to. Like even pre-preparing beforehand, unless it's something that's a client activation, I try and just not because you think about it too much, you overthink it, and then you're just you're spending ages working yourself up about something that's going to be. 20, 30 seconds on the stage, but will feel like an eternity. And it'll just feel longer if you've worked yourself up too much. That and the fact that no matter what I prep in advance, no matter what I've said to, to Nats, my co-host that we're going to do on the stage, as soon as I go on there, that's gone. Like it's forget, it's all gone. Like it's out the window almost immediately. And I'll be gone on down a different tangent altogether. Or I'll see someone in the front row who's got a sign and I'm like, that's what I'm going to talk about instead. So it's a waste of time. I, I, I try not to anymore. I just, I, I just go on and just see what happens and hope for the best. Um. One thing I like to kind of gain insight in is because I obviously have a strong accent um, and some Irish people do, would have a strong accent, but, you know, you probably have honed it to be quite neutral through the years, especially working in media over here. Did you have any trouble with that initially? So luckily, no. Um, I mean, I did a bit of work with um, with UTV initially, so I was a journalist and those those interviews were used nationally um, and uh, and they were used on national stations and also carried by the news service at the time, which was IRN. So I, I had a neutral accent anyway, like I'm from hospital. So we're in the countryside, regardless, my accent is pretty neutral. I didn't really need to do a whole pile with it in order to make it more neutral. But I think working in UTV certainly took, gave me a level of neutrality. That was more Then I worked when I worked with spin again, that was a station broadcasting to five or six different counties. So there's all these different, you've got the whole way from uh, Leash, like Tipperary. Uh, we, we had, I think we had Clare, uh, Kerry. So we had all these different accents, regional accents. So the game there was to try and not be from anywhere, but be from everywhere at the same time. So it's not that it's a rehearsed accent, but like as soon as I go back and I speak to someone who's from Limerick, or if I meet someone from Limerick, I'm out, it changes instantly. And I'm, I'm like, almost like nobody can understand what we're talking about type thing. <laughs> it's not it's not there all the time. Like This is how I normally speak. This is how I normally talk. So it's not that I have to hone it in, but I've just been fortunate in the positions that I've had that, you know, kind of got me to to hear but it was never it was never really a strong accent so i was i was really lucky with that one i think <laughs> yeah you're looking at that one jeez i'm uh going in the back foot unfortunately but hopefully my, my <laughs> yeah. neutral, neutral but again like, from our point like we think accents sound like we can tell okay that person's from cork that person's from Kerry. but if we listen to someone from the uk i can tell now but only because working with them i can tell who's a northerner i can tell someone who's from london like i can tell the the, the nuances there because they're quite they're quite obvious you know but from anyone else's point of view listening, it's like how I can't distinguish Canadians, Americans. They sound the same, but they're totally different. So I think if from anyone else's point of view listening, your accent is Irish, it's kind of, that's, that's the long and the short of it. It's like, oh yeah, you sound like Gerard Butler in PS I Love You, which by the way, <laughs> nobody sounds anything like. So I think that's like, I think everyone just goes, that's an Irish accent. And you, you get away with it regardless of, uh, of how you sound. So I think we're lucky in that regard that people don't know the, the different regional dialects unless they're actually from Ireland I think here is one of those places where you have to ask somebody where they're from unless it's very very obvious you have to be like hey where like where are you from in Ireland because I think being here and being surrounded by so many cultures we almost pigeon English it quite a lot to try and make sure that we're being understood so I think that that's probably living here knocks it out of you a little bit as well and after a couple of years and I'm like luckily we're not doing the whole Madonna move to London for six weeks and had an accent from there but I think that our accent becomes a bit more neutral over time especially living here in somewhere that's so multicultural where you speak with 
20 different nationalities a day. Yeah, and it, you have to change your, your the tone and how, you know, pidgin English is, is, is the best way of putting it a lot of times, yeah. depending on the cultures you're, you're working with. Um, I like to bring my guests back um, and the, the, the listeners back to kind of, you know, the early days of, of my guests um, and what kind of shaped them into the person they are today. We kind of touched on, on parts of it, but you're Irish from Limerick. Um, do you want to just kind of give a, a brief insight? Yeah, so my, I mean, my, my mum's from Clare, my dad's from Limerick, so they, we lived in Limerick all of our lives, um, and I'm from, I'm from hospital, but originally, so I suppose people always say, oh, how did you know that this was what you wanted to do, and, and the answer was, I never did anything else, as weird as that sounds, like when I was, when I was 13, when, when I was very, very young, like I'm talking like seven, and there's videos of this, which are, I'll send them to you, but just don't use them, <laughs> but there was videos when I was like seven, where I don't know, I had this thing for like performing on a camera and my, my uncle had a camera, my uncle Joe had a camera. So he'd record videos of me like singing and dancing. Like I haven't a note in my head, but that wasn't it. It was more about like doing like funny songs and stuff. Like my dad oh. used to listen to Seamus Moore and stuff like that and Richie Kavanagh. <laughs> so, and it wasn't that I was forced to do it. I wasn't like a showbiz kid or anything like that, but I wanted to do it. So I'd record myself on tape and then I'd rec- they'd record videos of me doing stuff. Um, so that was when I was like seven, like before I'd even made my communion, I was doing that. And then I just kind of kept, kept doing stuff like that, whereas I'd record songs off the radio. Then I'd delete out the DJ's voice, like I'd have it timed, and I'd record myself speaking in between the songs. So I think it was like in me, and it's not anywhere else in my family. Nobody in my family works on radio. Nobody works on TV. So I don't, I don't know where exactly it came from. That was just what I was doing. I used to ring into radio stations to try and get on air all the time and, you know, and be successful quite a lot. Like about stuff that I had zero opinion about, not one shit given and would like jump on a, jump on a late night phone chat on, on Cork's Red FM or, or 96 FM, whatever, one of the presenters there to talk about something I had no care about, but just to get on the radio. So it was always there and I knew, hey, this is something that, that like I really love doing. So I learned a bit about it, like myself on my own. There was no real to, to go and try and find out more about radio. So what I did was um, I ended up buying parts of um, a radio transmitter. We had to buy them like from, you'd normally buy some from the UK. There was some you could get, but the, 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 the guts of the actual transmitter, you couldn't buy from the UK without a license. So I'd have to buy them from a company who were based in the UK, but would ship it from Africa back to Ireland. So, I mean, it, I was 13 doing this, right? So it was, it was quite inventive. Like it was the early days of the internet. Like I was finding stuff online in the library to try and like figure out where I could buy this stuff from. So, and then I'd phone up the company and tell them what I, what I wanted. So I started off with a really low grade transmitter that broadcast to basically the area where I live. So I had to put up an aerial for that. So that was the first thing that we did, which my dad helped me out with. You were quite totally innovative at the time. Yeah, yeah. Totally Jeez. not okay to do this, by the way. <laughs> so then that broadcast just to like, maybe about a two or three kilometer radius around where I live, right? That was probably the maximum. Then uh, from there, I was like, right, this is something I could probably get in with. I'll increase the wattage. I'll see what I can do with this. I'll see how far I can put But I needed new equipment. So I took to buyandsell.ie. It was before buy. I think it was the actual buy and sell. Like you buy the magazine. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I took to that and was selling like a radio transmitter. Luckily, nobody from, I can't remember what the BAI was called at that stage, but there was a precursor that it was definitely illegal to do this. And uh, I sold it to a, com- a, a bunch of guys in Cork and they were setting up a radio station, which later went on to become Kiss FM. So they bought oh. a low-grade transmitter off me 
And then they were building onto it like further. They were buying other parts internationally. Same thing as I was doing, but I had it built from scratch. Like I just soldered it together. So with the money I made in profit, I bought a higher grade transmitter and bought a new aerial, but that one had to go on the roof of the house. So now we were getting like big, and I luckily live in a hill. So now we were broadcasting to like uh, about 16 kilometers. So now we were going bigger again. And then in order to fill the content, I had like one computer that I was given from my cousins. Um, in order to fill the content, I would basically get people from around to come in and do stuff. So I had like one girl who was doing love with Leslie. So she'd take the magazine, she'd read the okay magazines, love letters on the radio. Um, and it was so rudimental. Like I was using an old, like an old laptop microphone, the real skinny ones. And then bit by bit, as I started like getting cash from DJ on the side, I'd buy more equipment. I'd buy a microphone. I'd buy a CD player and I ended up with a full on rig. And I thought it was, it ended up being so hot in my bedroom. I had to sleep in the spare room because the equipment was just roasting. So that was when I was like 13 through to about 15. I started working in community radio at 15 years of age because they opened one near where I live. Um, and from there, got a job with um, Live 95. I actually got a placement with Live 95. Once I'd finished school and once I'd studied, I went and did a work placement in Live 95. And they were like, hey, listen, we need someone to just, just read out the agricultural news and the death notices. And I'm like, perfect. Right up my street. Not a clue about cows and <laughs> not really overly interested in who's dead in the vicinity. You can't but, really make that exciting either. Like. <laughs> no, no, no. You can't. Like, So... I did that and I was like, yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a foot in the door. And then I think it was, there was a agri news that I used to do every day. I, it was one story about Mocker and the Farmer Girls doing a, a calendar that they were selling. You know, I can't remember, like a bit of a saucy calendar. And I covered that story in the agricultural news. And it was the guy who was the head of program was like, it's pretty, that's pretty out there. Like, it's pretty inventive to come up with that. He's like, do you want to, do you want to jump on and help us out with the talk show, like producing the talk show? So from there, I ended up, like, a, lot of the, a lot of the jobs I've had have been a series of unfortunate or fortunate events from my point of view that have led me to get there. Like one girl had left UTV at that stage, a girl called Petula Martin, who's a reporter on RT now. So her job became available. I was still very young to be taking a position of a senior uh, journalist. And, uh, and, and by some stroke of luck, uh, the, the PD of the station, the guy who was head of news, uh, said, look, I'm going to give you the job, see how it goes. And I loved it. What do you think made you that. stand out? you know to get um, that job i don't know like, i don't know maybe it's just uh, i, I kind of just will get on with anything like you give me a task i'm like sure you know it doesn't really i don't really say no to anything and i think when you're doing something like this it needs you need to have that attitude where you're like yeah i'll do court reporting i'll do hard hitting stuff but then i'll pop down and cover the dog show that's happening down in adair as well so you needed to be able to do a bit of everything and i, I like i a broad spectrum of interest so i just would do anything that was kind of thrown at me so i just took every opportunity that was going to do that <clears throat> but i think so as I was working for them for about three years, I think, and, and it, like, I loved it. I loved the court reporting part of it. I loved reporting on the crime. I loved everything about it. But things were, at the time, there was, a, there was some issues that were happening in some parts of the city. And I was stationed bang in the middle of, of, one, of, of one of those. Well, that would have been the time infection. when things were uh, hot, hot and heavy in, in that area. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> so there was two, obviously, and there was yeah. one guy, he knew the, the north of the city better. I knew the south of the city better because I'm from East Limerick, so that would have been the closer area for me, so I would have known the areas. And I had cousins who lived in the area, and I had friends who lived in the area, so I thought, you know what, this is, this is perfect, I'll cover this. I remember covering one hit and run, and there was members of what was a feud at the time that were involved in it. So that was relevant. It, wasn't, it was relevant because it, was a, it wasn't a hit and run, it was a joyride and they crashed the car, sorry. And uh, it wasn't relevant because that was the story. The story was relevant because of who was involved in it. 
So as I was covering the story, um, I basically do recording the clip back and I could see my car being smashed by people um, in the distance. And I'm like, great. So I went back and there's a mirror missing off the car and there is some damage done to the side of the car. And, and I said it, I was like, listen, I'm going to, I spoke to the, the sergeant. I'm like, I was, I want to make a report. He's like, it's really not like, he's like, don't, don't, don't do that. And there's no insurance that covers it because a journalist, you can't get insurance when you're on the job. It's just not a thing. Your insurance doesn't cover you. And it's very explicit about that. So I thought, as much as I love this job, and I really do, like, if anything comes up, like, I will, I will have a look and see. Again, by the grace of God, I got uh, a message from the PD of Spin Southwest. They'd just been open, I think, about two years at the time. And she was like, listen, I've got a job coming up. It's a talk show thing. So it, like, melts what you currently do but with presenting as well. And I thought, yeah, I'll jump at that. No problem at all. I went straight across to Spin and stayed there, I think, for about four years and co-hosted with, first of all, with a girl called Jackie, then with Myrna O'Connell. Um, and it's nice to see everyone that I worked with along the way have gone on to, you know, I mean, Warren's the, the, the breakfast presenter on TV3 now. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, it's great to see people who I've worked with go so far in Irish media. It's just, it's awesome to see that. And I don't know if they, they have this amazing ability and this, this such a likability. They're, they're, they're amazing presenters and they're so talented to work with. And I, I don't know if I'd have been as fortunate if I was back at home, but I think Dubai gives you those opportunities that you'd never that you'd never in a million years get back at home. You'd be waiting a long time to get them. I think what you said, like a lot of what you said there is extremely interesting. And uh, you just summed one thing up there. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunities and all that, but I do think um, over here gets, gives you a lot of opportunities quicker than you probably would back in, uh, back in Ireland. Maybe just because the economy is, is so advanced and it's a, kind of effectively a first world country um, and a developed country. So, yeah. you know, that's, that, that's quite interesting. One thing I'd like to get your opinion on, and this might be a stupid question, but let's, let's suggest that what type of mindset must you have when you're emceeing an event compared to when you're presenting a radio station? In my opinion, it's pretty much the same. <clears throat> when you're doing a radio show, you're much more verbose than you would be because you're trying to convey your emotion, whatever that may be, and you're trying to do it through words there's no visual connection. So you're trying to paint a picture, you're trying to do it through words, which is a difficult thing to do. And I, I, I think I thank my dad for that one. My dad's a great storyteller. My dad is able to paint a picture when he's telling a joke or a yarn, he'll tell it, he'll, he paints a picture that just, it, it, you can see exactly, you can visualize exactly what's going on. For radio, you need to be able to do that. You, you're telling somebody a story about how your car broke down yesterday and somebody came along to help you on the side of the street. That's the short version. The long version has to have enough detail in there to not be boring, but in order to give somebody a visual picture of what's going on so that they're on the journey with you, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's what's, when you're doing that live, you're able to use hand gestures, you're able to use body movement, you're able to use facial expressions in a way that you can't use on the radio. I think that's, that's the difference. That's what doesn't translate between the two. They're very much connected, but that doesn't necessarily mean every MC is a good radio presenter and vice versa. Not every radio presenter wants to stand up and do stuff MC. And a lot of them don't. A lot of them are quite happy just to be behind the microphone and never go out and do any events publicly. So, yeah, I think that's there's being able to paint a picture like with just your words is the difference between the two. Do you think your upbringing would have really helped you in that regard? Um, I think what and this is I've always said this as well. My parents never pushed me to do anything. Um, there's a lot of teachers in the family. There's doctors on my dad's side of the family as well. And there was never this pressure, this academic pressure to go out there and be like, you have to follow this exact path. You must do school. Then you must do university. Then you must go and get a job. And it must be something that you've studied. 
it was never that. Like, I think when I was about 17, I went away to holiday, on holidays to Spain and didn't come back for the summer. And their response was good, you know, good, good. You'll have some cash. That's great. You know, come back whenever you're ready. Um, and, and I came back and went back to school again. And I did the same the following year, but I went to Greece. And they're like, they've always kind of just been like, grab it. Just if something, if something comes up and you want to do it, just do it. Like, just go and have fun with it. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was, that was one of those things where I, I was like, look, I, I think that they instilled this thing into me where there is no pressure. There is no at-home pressure that's going to be like, you must do this and this is how you must follow it. And we're paying good money to put you through education. Make sure you get a job that's, you know, directly connected to that. And initially I was like, I'm going to be a teacher. That's perfect. It's perfectly easy. I'll do a B-Ed and then I'll go off and teach kids forever and I'll retire at 54 and life will be wonderful. Um, and then I did, I did a placement in a school and was like, I hate this. <laughs> Everything about this is like not for me. So I, I guess... From, the, from what they instilled into me and from my upbringing, it was always, it was just, you know, whatever I needed in order to try and be creative or do creative things, they'd provide it. And, and you know, it was, what they did was, was phenomenal for me. And, and what now I think that I get to return the favor a little bit, you know, bring them here maybe for a bit too long. Like last year was four months. And by the end of it, I was like, okay, this, I'm done with this. <laughs> but, but I think it's nice to be able to like return the favor and just for what they did for me is I can't put a value on it because it, they were the ones who told me, just go do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. And if you're not happy doing it, do something else. And I followed that pretty much rigorously through even my entire experience here. Whenever you're doing something that doesn't make you happy, just get yourself away from it. Do something else differently altogether. There's no pressure on you to do anything. There'll always be a different job or something else that you can do. And you'll always kind of fall on your feet. And luckily, touch wood so far, it's been exactly that. It's great that you've, you know, you had that as a foundation growing up because you see a lot of people that they're, um, they're kind of chasing uh, realities they see on social media um, and you know trying to you know that probably affects them then, um, physically and, and, and mentally as well um, before before I get down into that um, down to that route and, and kind of go down that avenue I'd like to just kind of explore uh, what did you learn from your time in Ireland and in, in media in Ireland that you know has really benefited you in your in your career here in, in Dubai, it's not just from there, but also from here as well. Like you're constantly learning, and I've, I've like I'm firmly believe that the day you think that you know everything, you may as well just quit because you're always learning. Like, and you learn something like every week. There's something new that you learn that shapes you into the the presenter or the host or the talent that you are. And I think from back at home, the, the point of view is that your words can mean a lot more to somebody than uh, you perceive them to be. And it might be misconstrued completely, like totally. So you, no matter what you're about to say, just remember that somebody might take that wrong, take offense to it. They might be hurt or upset by what you say. And that it is at the end of the day, it's your opinion. And that if you don't clarify, it's your opinion, you make it sound like it's a fact. And, and that's like, that's one. And I've fallen into that before. And like, I, when I was working with spin, there was, um, I, I once libeled somebody on air who was, they were, I, I'm not going to mention the name again. I don't want to try and get into this route no, again, but enough. they were a high rolling bank official. Let's give them for want of a better word without giving away any titles or deeds or anything. Um, and on air, a listener had said that they were a crook and a criminal. And I said, secondarily going, 
well, yeah, if they're a crook and a criminal, all I said was if they're a crook and a criminal. Within 10 seconds, the show was off the air and the lawyers were on the phone and we were going to be dragged over the hot coals and I was in front for a warning. And I think at the time, the only way we got out of it is saying, look, we'll, if it ever comes to light that that was a fact and that this particular person is a crook and a criminal, we'll countersue. And I moved to Dubai before I found out that they actually were. So they actually had been embezzling money and everything. And I was like, oh, but it's too late now, you know? The case got dropped, but I thought, right, that was really, really close, like way too close for comfort. There was another year that a particular country won um, the Eurovision. And I said something about the the entry on air. And I was like, normally, and you what you ask about my accent, like, no, like sometimes it gets me in trouble. And I said, normally the entry for the Eurovision is pop and upbeat. This particular one, not so much. Uh, somebody misheard it. One person misheard it. And they, as a ca- the cascade of emails, like countless, countless emails came through to the station. My, my, my Instagram and my Twitter were clogged up with people being like, ban him from the radio, remove him from the radio. You know, how shocking to say this. Facebook, there was messages flown into the station. My boss is like, what have you said? And I'm like, I really have no idea. And they were putting the country's flag and they were saying, look, I yeah, can't believe you'd say something like this. The initial person who'd headed up, which by the way, there was one, went on the Facebook group for the, for the community that was existed here in Dubai and said, this has just been said on Dubai 92 by this presenter. Please go and spam him. You know, you can't get away with saying this. So we got in touch with the guy direct because he also had emailed. He was one of the first people to email. And we're like, look, I don't know what you heard. And you said, look, you just called my entire country folk um, plumpy and obese. And I'm like, like where did you get this from? He's like, I heard you say like, Normally they're plumpy and obese, but this time they're not like referring to the, the this winner of the Eurovision. I'm like, I was like, I, like, I don't know where you've got this. Listen back to the audio and it's me talking to somebody else been like, yeah, normally it's poppy and upbeat. He misheard it. So we sent the audio and he was like, oh my God, like, I'm so sorry. Like I've made a huge mistake. He went on the Facebook page, but the damage has already been done. Like you've already, there's another 200 people who are not going to see that who'd already gone and spammed me. Like I had to remove myself from social media for three weeks. We sent copies of the audio to everybody who got in touch over email. And I was like, right, whatever you say, it can be taken by just one person, completely misconstrued, blown out of proportion. And before you know it, your career is, is over. Because if I had said that, and rightly so, it would have been a career ender. Yeah, if you'd like offended a nation, of course, that's the end of your career. And rightly so. That's not what I'd said. It was misconstrued. And then that's probably one of those ones where I was like, right always just check to make sure that what you're saying can't be misconstrued and that what you're saying can't be incriminating anybody unless it's, you know, something that's true. Jeez. Wow. How, what were those three weeks like? You're saying you must have been sleeping very, very hell. little. <laughs> hell, hell, hell. Hell. There's no, there's no, and now, like, I don't remember how bad it was because I'm like, you, you, I think you do that thing where you regress everything and just go, that was fine. Um, but I remember at the time it'd been hell, like there was tears that was like, I don't know what to do. Like, this is my job. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to leave the country. Everything, everything runs through your mind. Um, and yeah, and, I, and it, it happens a lot. So you think you have to, you have to really be, you have to mind your P's and Q's. And, and luckily I've never fallen foul of something where I said something which actually was, you know, not an okay thing to say. So I've been really lucky in that regard, but even somebody misconstruing it can still have the same repercussions. John, could you just bring us through the first few years in Dubai? Um, because look, I'm going to probably lay it bare here. Um, when you're at home in Ireland and you see people out in Dubai, you think they're living their life, happy day, sun, sea, whatnot. Um, it's quite different living here. And it can very much, uh, you know, it's like a, a turning table. You can end up back home very quickly if you don't um, 
stay on your toes and, and watch your watch your money. What was the first couple of years like in Dubai for you once you got through the system of getting, you know, getting the brunches out of your out of your uh, your system and, and whatnot? Yeah. So again, a lot of people fall into that trap, don't they? When they move here and they end up in massive debt and they're they're trying to figure out what exactly they want to do. And I, I was still quite young when I moved here. Like I was in my early twenties still like, and I'd done quite a lot back at home, but I was still that not as responsible with cash as I would like to have been. I think I was here maybe about six months. I'd taken out two credit cards and each had like a relatively low amount of amount of a spend. And I think it was like 10,000 dirhams per card, max them both out, spent two years paying them back. The usual stuff that everyone does. I think when they move to Dubai, both parties, you know, out six nights a week thinking, ah, this is the life, this is the life. I don't know at what a switch flicks, but you, I guess adulthood happens and you realize that you have to be responsible and that you're not just responsible for yourself, but you're responsible for your family and you're responsible for whatever you're, you know, taking care of. And then it switches and becomes life. And I see a lot of people move over here and, you know, whatever line of work they work in, they are doing the whole party thing and they're living that Instagram lifestyle. And, and I know how unrealistic it is. And, I, I see them because I, these are people who are friends of mine in what I like to call real life as opposed to the circle that you see on social media and the reality versus the, the social media version of them is it's too tall. It's night and day. Like f- from an outward point of view, everyone, everyone's like, Oh yeah, you're working like seven. It must be so fun. You're out doing this and you're at concerts and you're doing this. Like I'm off two nights a week to be fair. Yeah. I do work a lot, but when I'm off, like, I'm at home, I'm spending time with the animals, I'm sitting in the garden, like I'm just chilling out, trying to do as little as possible. And I think at some point, when you start make that decision that here is no longer a stopgap, that here is now life, once you start building your career, and, and certainly when I worked at McGettigan's, I was traveling a lot, I was working in, in their different bars, you know, so it was a lot of different places that I was, and I was back at home quite a lot. Um, and at, even at that point, I was like, right, well, this is career, as opposed to it being... Uh, work and holiday and it's definitely the first two years where you spend here where you you get yourself into financial trouble like very very easily and I've had friends who've come over who've been given the chance to come over here and, and you know take take it and run with a job and they've done the complete opposite you know I, I know one guy who he tells these stories I'm not like speaking out of turn here but he came over here with a good job like relatively good money certainly a lot more than he'd been getting back at home and he had free accommodation you know, free meals, everything. It was it was a really good job. Some family came to visit and he decided to rent out a Range Rover for a ridiculous amount of time. He got a credit card and ran up a bit of 60 grand. And I think four months later, he couldn't pay it back, jumped the country, left, just left the debt after him, was done. And I see it's happened to so, so, so many people that I'm like, it's almost like I've seen it happen. So I didn't want it to happen to me. So I kicked my own ass into order and was like, listen, get your finances sorted. Stop going out. Like just stop this whole going out thing. Like have a normal life. Like if I was back at home, I wouldn't have been out six nights a week. Like that's bananas. You would never do that. So I was like, this is, this is, you need to get yourself ready for your future. You need to save, you need to make sure you have money. You need to have your pension. You need, you know, all this stuff that you need to put into order that if you want to have a better life down the line, you need to be sensible. And yeah, like, I do treat myself, don't get me wrong, like, but I don't do the whole brunch scene. I don't really go out for dinner, I, you know, unless I'm going out and it's free, in which case, yeah, I'm there twice. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't do that, that lifestyle. And again, it's like there's a version of me that's on social media or there's a version of me that's portrayed maybe on social media. The reality and the version that I give on the radio is, is, is more real because that's just, 
I'm just a normal guy living life, but my life just happens to be that I live in Dubai. And I guess that's a switch has to flick at some stage where you go, hey, stop shitting around with your, it's not going to be there forever. It's not an endless supply. You don't realize how lucky you are to live here. And, and you know, I'd be quite as happy back at home as well, but you wouldn't be doing this back at home. So I, I once did an interview with The Independent and I think they were like, give us one quote that uh, would sum up like living here. And it was like, don't do anything your mother wouldn't be proud of. And your mother wouldn't be proud if you were out every night of the week spending like a hundred euro on getting leathered for no real reason. So that's the exact motto I live by. Again, likewise, she wouldn't be happy if you were dancing on the tables when you're out either. So I'm always like, just don't do anything your mother wouldn't be proud of. You should probably be fine and stack away some cash. But no, like I was lucky. And again, I think the pandemic also hammered that home because up to that point, I mean, I had a, 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 there was a safety net that was there, but and luckily I never had to to dig into it, but that safety net just became a bit bigger and a bit bigger during COVID when I was like, we don't know when this is going to end. We've got no, this could be a year. This could be two years. And we're still going through this now. And it's like almost three years. And I think that also switched me completely to be like, listen, just got to save. You just got to use that money that you're making here and put it towards something sensible or invest it some way wisely. That's not like, I'm very old school. Like I don't, I don't like taking risks with any cash. So like when I say invest, I mean like put it in a bank account that's making interest, not something that's going to be like put it in crypto because I don't, get, don't understand <laughs> it. So I'm not going to I'm not going to get into that. And I, and I think and I've seen like, again, the same thing with the trap here. People who are like, oh, I just invested. And I, I kid you not. There was a guy who had this big conversation about how he was investing in graves in London. Like he was after buying. Um, burial sites in London. It was like, you understand, it's at a premium. Like, you can't bury people. Everyone's been cremated. People want to be buried. Like, we, like the investment I bought is graves in London. I'm like, wow. I don't know how he got, I, I fell out of touch him. I don't know how he got on, but I was like, that is sounds way too high risk for me. Like, I am not putting money on that. Like, no way. But he did, he genuinely bought like, he was like, it was that or buy an apartment. And I'm like, would have gone for the apartment. It seems like that's going to be money better spent. But I've just never really taken risks with cash. And certainly since COVID, I'm like, I'm not not doing anything like that. I wouldn't even chance it. Yeah, I'd be saying kind of risk adverse. Um, maybe it's just a. I wouldn't say it's an Irish team because there's always people that that uh that go the opposite. But yeah, maybe it's a maybe it's a country thing. You think so? Yeah, it's instilled <laughs> yeah. into, isn't it? It's like under the mattress. Just keep that there. You never know where you're going to need <laughs> yeah. that cash. Like hold on to your communion money because that'll become something valuable. You know, at a later stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think I think it's and it's. I don't think it's instilled from my parents. Weirdly, I think it just kind of it happened over time, and I just grew up and was like, okay, I've got more than me to be responsible for. So if anything happens, I've got a zoo to move back home. Like so, like I, I would prefer just to make sure the cash is there for the safety net. <laughs> And what, what would you say the biggest uh, challenges were moving to Dubai? The, the, look, it was at the time, it, was, it wasn't like now, there wasn't 20 different TV shows that you could stream on YouTube telling you about life in Dubai. There was just a lot of speculation on the internet about what here is like, what the rules are, what the culture is. And I've got to be honest with you, the majority of stuff that I read, I was like, Okay, like this is why it's going to be a place for a year and then when i moved i fell in love with the place it's it's you read this stuff online and it's just so much of it is tripe and and you can't like i see it on facebook as well like a lot of people who'll comment on those um brits in dubai or irish yeah. in dubai groups and with a with a comment about you know a question that is innocent because they don't know any different but they've read it online and then they'll take it as 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 gospel and that's not the case at all 
like I've never felt so welcome in a place and haven't worked in a lot of different places. I've never felt so welcome in a place as I have here. I've never felt somewhere feel like home and, and as so quickly as it did when I moved here as well. So I think a lot of the, a lot of the struggle was getting rid of what was the, the, what everyone believes or what everyone has as a, as an opinion versus the reality, which is it's a million miles away. You'll know in advance, like you'll have read this before you moved here and the stuff you read it's getting better. I'm not like, it's getting better than it was. And you can watch TV shows about it. They're either too far removed from reality where it's like desperate housewives type stuff. And, <laughs> yeah. and you know, like I can't remember. There's another one I watched as well recently. It was on BBC and I thought, yeah, what real estate was it? Like, yeah. I'm not, yeah. I'm like, I'm not doing this. Like, what are these people at? Um, does that level. And then there's the scaremongering scare tactics that have been written by people who probably have never even been here. So I think that was probably one of the first things that I was like, I'm not entirely sure, but I remember we just been, there was no flights to Dubai at the time when I moved here. So I flew into Abu Dhabi. Um, and when I drove down to Dubai, I came in and there wasn't much in Dubai Marina. I mean, there was a bit, but definitely nowhere near it is now, like what it is now. JLT was pretty much a building size. They were just starting to build a, the towers there and stuff. And I was staying in JLT. The lakes had no water. The, it was no, it was just, L, it was just JT. JT. <laughs> there was no, no lakes. But I think that was like, I got in and I'm like, whoa like i've not i'd not seen anything like that i'd not been to like new york or singapore anywhere that's like on par with here so i'd not seen anything like this and the first thing i saw was the what i call the chrysler building business central tower i now work across it every day it was the first thing i saw and i was like whoa like is that the burj khalifa what is that like and now i know that it's only 40 or 50 stories and it's like one of the smaller ones but i was like blown away being like this is just bananas i was living i think on the living on the 13th floor when I moved here first and I was like wow like I live on the 13th floor this is incredible there's nothing even this tall in Ireland like we've got the Clarion Hotel and it's 12 stories so like it was a total culture shock totally a culture shock but really felt at home very very quickly and made friends because everyone's an expat here isn't it it's like yeah. everyone's just doing the same thing we're all just working we all just want to make friends and, and the unfortunate thing is with here is that not everyone sees it as a lifetime place to live like luckily the girl that i work with has been here all of her life she's been here since she was a kid she's italian her dad lives here and she's been here all of her life so she's one of those lifers who's going to be here forever you know and there's a couple of people like that but far and few between more often than not there are people who are here for a couple of years see how it goes and then they leave again like three going away parties in the space of two weeks like and it happens so often you make friends with somebody and then they decide they're getting an opportunity somewhere else. So they're going somewhere else. And I think that's probably the difference is that I see here as home and they see here as a, as a stopgap, I guess. What about yourself? Do you, you say you see, see it as home. Do you see, see yourself moving back to Ireland at some stage or you just kind of play it by, play it by year? So just before COVID happened, I thought I could do it and move. Like I could move back home. Like, and it was just a few different things. It was like, family wise my parents were are getting older they're not old and they'll kill me for saying that so i'm not going to say they're old but like they're getting older and i just thought do i want to be back at home do i want to be you know investing my time back in ireland do i want to be making a name for myself back there doing stuff um and some opportunities came up and some of them were quite good but none of them ticked all the boxes that i wanted to um and then when i go back home you kind of have this reality kick where you're like oh well it's not it's it's great because it's home and home will always be great but it's not affording you the same opportunities that you'd have here. So, so no, uh, you obviously always worry about what next or what happens if, if you lose your job or what, because you don't know, you don't know what's around the corner. But I mean, now, luckily I was given the golden visa. So at least I have 
like some level of security. So even if, 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 if I did, you know, again, touch wood, if I did or lose my job or anything happened like that, I would at least have some security where I don't have to, I don't have to go and leave the country or I don't have to close my bank accounts or here's always open as an option. So yeah, I think that's what's different about here now is that I kind of look and go, right, what am I buying for the future? What am I investing in for the next 10 years? Like what house am I looking at next or, or where am I moving to or what am I doing or what am I putting up or that kind of stuff, which is stuff that you only do when you're, you feel like you're at home, you know? And how do you deal with negativity that you get online? Um, because look, naturally when you're out there in the public, you want to get the good, but you also get the bad. How do you deal with that? I've been really lucky on this. Like I've been really, really lucky. And, and most of the stuff you get is nothing but nice. Um, it really is like, uh, I'm more so than I used to ever get back at home. Cause at home I've read some stuff on forums where I was like, ah, but um, again, like I take it as if you worked in customer service, if you've ever, like I've worked in bars in the past, like I've worked as, as waiting staff. There's always one customer who's like, don't really love the way you're dealing with this situation. And, and there'll always be that one person. Not everyone can like you, right? And that's that's totally fine. And I, I'll try my best, like, don't get me wrong. I'll try my best to try and get on with everybody. But there's some people you just meet who are just arses. And that's, you can't, you can't really deal with that a whole pile. You just have to go, that's your opinion. And it, it's the same thing, like, as I said earlier on, if I state something on the radio, it's not a fact, it's an opinion. And it's my opinion. That's their opinion. They're entitled to that if they want. It doesn't matter what necessarily they think, like... I do try and keep like the majority of the stuff that I do off of social media where at all possible, unless it's station with stuff that I have to do because you don't, I don't, I try not to open myself up to getting any negative comments, but you'll always offend somebody. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how careful you are. There's somebody out there who will take umbrage with something that you said, or that's upset with something. That you, again, it's their opinion. They're entitled to it. You have to kind of, it used to hurt me quite a lot more than it does now. But it's kind of like water off a duck's back. If that person's not happy with you or they've, they've decided to go and block you on social, that's, that's, their, that's their deal. You can't let it. It's, it's basically bullying, but in an adult form. And the one thing you say to kids when they're being bullied is don't let it get to you. Like, it's nothing personal against you. This person has got their own insecurities that they're trying to deal with and they're just conveying it upon you for whatever reason. Like, it's not your fault that they're doing this. And you just have to give yourself a talk until like that and just be like, this is not... It's not anything that you've done, unless it is something you've done, in which case, you know, you deserve to take the brunt of it. But if, you, if it's not something you've done and they're just spouting hate for no reason, so be it. You can't let it get you down. You just, I don't lose any sleep over it. Rarely. I rarely lose sleep over it. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I sometimes lose sleep over it. <laughs> and, you know, like, I suppose, again, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's obviously a great thing because there's so many opportunities with social media, but... You know, you see people that you oh, you you think or you thought you've been getting along with and they might unfollow you or they follow you or whatever the case may be. And it's it's probably just the, the world we're living in and try not to leave those things get to you, like because you could meet that person out then and, and their great friends, just that they're just obviously going through a difficult time at that moment in time that they, you know, they unfollow you or whatever the case may be. Look, I think as I always said, you never know what somebody's going through themselves. You never know what struggles they're dealing with internally. Um, and again, it's a very Irish thing though. And I, I find like it, we as a nationality tend to do it a lot more than, than others. I've got friends who are like direct and to the point who'll be like, by the way, that you did that, it's ticked me off. Just so you're aware, I'm not happy about that. And I kind of appreciate it more than somebody who'll go, I'm going to unfollow you on Facebook. Cause I think like, that's just, yeah. that's petty. And whereas if somebody has got a genuine gripe with you and they want to, they want to broach it with you, it's probably a better way to, a better way to deal with it. And 
like I'll be receptive of it, even if I think your idea is shit, but I'll still be receptive and be like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's a hundred percent it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a job, a lot of jobs. And I always bring it back are customer service. You're just customer service focused and that's it. So if somebody's not happy with the product and you're the chef, you're not going to come up and be like, I'm right. Like, that's my food. I cooked it. You don't like it. That's your tough banana. You don't like, you just go, yeah, well, you know, that, that I'll take that on board and thanks very much. And I appreciate it. So a lot of the industries and services that you work in, if you just approach it, that you are basically in customer service and that somebody who's listening to you or somebody who's at one of your quizzes or that's at some event that you're doing or who's there when you're DJ, the amount of times that I get people coming up being like, your music is rubbish. And I'm like, well, they're all dancing, but you know, that's fine. If you don't like it, give me a song. Then be like, play, I don't know, uh, what's the reggaeton? I'm like, you know, give me a song and I'll see what I can do. And, and they normally don't know one. So they've just decided to put up a window <laughs> because they're not having a good night. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's, you know, that's your opinion, but there's another, and luckily you can visualize there's another 50 people who are there who actually are enjoying it and they think it's good. And likewise, when you listen to the radio, one person might be like, I don't like what you just said. There's also probably another 100,000 people who are like, I like what you just said. So, again, it's, it's water off a duck's back and it just becomes a mindset where you go, right, just switch it off, throw it back into the back somewhere. It only hurts when there's people who are close to you, like close friends and stuff, where they fall out with you for something that you've, you've done or not done or, or whatever. So that's, that's the only thing. That's a different kind of a ball game separately that everyone has in their lives, you know? And like, where, where has been the most coolest or amazing place you've presented at? Venue-wise, I mean, Expo probably ticks the boxes for that. I mean, you're talking about an international event streamed worldwide. The entire globe is watching this event, and we didn't realize because we were so wrapped up in it here, we didn't realize just how amazing it was on a world scale to see that many people come together for one event. It's, I mean, 24 million visits to any event is phenomenal. For a closing ceremony to have that many hundreds of thousands there, and I don't even know how many hundreds of thousands it was, but 100,000 people for sure in one small area looking at a gig of a, you know, world-class performers on the stage. You're like, this is, this is next level. Like we were, When we walked off the stage, Tiesto walked past us to come up and do his sound check with no security or anything, and we were just like, that's Tiesto. And, you were like, and it was like one of those things where we're like, this is bananas. Like Christina Aguilera comes out in her pajamas and walks past you, and you're like, this is not reality. Surely this is not real. Like, so I think that was probably, that was without a doubt the coolest. I mean, there's been loads. There's been loads that I've done that, you know, have been not just here, but international stuff as well. But uh, the ones from here really stand out because it gives you this sense of pride where you're like, I cannot believe what we've put on as a city or as a country that we've done something like this. That is so world-class. It's just next level. And we get to host it. It's like, it's all your dreams come through. Even the like the night of Expo, we hosted um, the the pre concert, which was Andrea Bocelli and you know, Christina Aguilera sang at that as well, which was from the Dome. And I watched it being like, and all the flags came out of all the different countries. And I'm like, this is where I live. That has done this. Like, how phenomenal is this? Like, we were all in bits, like crying, thinking this is just like emotions are so heightened that it's next level. And then to know that we went straight on the stage after that, doing the hosting for the rest of the event, it was like, oh, like we're never going to get to experience something like this in our lifetimes again. Um, so I think that was probably, yeah, Expo for me stands out as probably one of the most incredible experiences that I've had while I've been here. Who's been, I say the list could be as long as your, as long as your arm, but who's kind of the, 
the person that stands out there that you've interviewed interviewed or, or spoke to at an event yeah interviewed to date there's it's easier to pick the bad ones than the good ones i always say that because because it is but uh I interview, so I'm a big fan of the band Ace of Bass, right? Which I know sounds ridiculous, but I like their music, right? I've always been a fan and I've never got to see them live. Anyway, they announced they were coming to a gig in Dubai Opera and I got really excited about it. And my boss at the time organized an interview with, because there's only one person left in it now, one girl. And he wanted an interview with her and I jumped in the interview and I was overly ecstatic. And I was like, listen, like I'm a huge fan. And I had like a record and I picked up the record and I showed it to her like a tiny vinyl. And I'm like, this is the only merchandise I have, you know, like, why don't you guys have hoodies or like caps or whatever? And the whole interview, she thought I was taking the mic out of her. Like the whole interview, she thought that I was just like being facetious about how much of a fan I was. And she's like, nobody's actually a fan like this at least. And I was like, look, I'm so stoked to see you. The whole interview just fell so flat. Like she just was like, hmm, okay. Hmm. And it was on Zoom. And I was like, this is a disaster. <laughs> this is this is the worst of the worst. I'm like, I don't know, like, where do I go from here? I'm like, like, you know, got any new music? And she's like, nope. And I'm like, oh my God, this is going from bad to worse to worse. <laughs> so I wrapped the interview and I'm like, I'm not going to go to the concert. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to go. So I didn't go and I'm like, well, that was disappointing. So before, when, when like every time I used to introduce them, I'm like, best band in the world of all time ever. Now I'm like, most awkward interview in the world of all time ever. <laughs> it's it's a bit. <laughs> so it's easy to point out the ones that are like, that are, that are negative. But I got it, like, I mentioned a while ago, we, we interviewed, we did the backstreet and, um, and Mel C and stuff. We got to chat to a Spice Girl, but we got to chat to her a few times to the point where we almost became like like mates by the end of it. So that was that was very cool. Uh, also, the script, Danny from the script, amazing. Uh, and we had ah, oh, like he's just he had he spoke about the mental health issues he went through during during COVID, and that I think just so resonated with so many people. Like everyone, everyone was at a heightened anxiety. And he spoke about it so openly and candidly in an interview before he performed at the Dubai Air Show. And I just really respected him for it. Um, and also, we just, we just kind of bounced with each other. So I think it was supposed to be a 10-minute interview. It ended up being half an hour long. We just really got on very, very well. Um, and One Republic, also a bunch of really nice guys. Um, yeah, and, and again, you, you get surprised when somebody's like a huge international artist and you get to interview them. You're always cagey about how they're going to be and how they're going to interact um, and, and just you're, normally you're pleasantly surprised by how nice they are, but there have been so many, like so many of them have just been incredible. I've been fortunate enough to interview so many people that have just been blown away. But one of the ones that I just, there's no way that this is real was uh, Slash. We got to interview Slash. And Slash is the greatest guitarist in the world of all time. And I'm not a rock fan, but I realized the, the, how absolutely the, the enormity of the interview was when I post like a picture and everyone's like, Oh my God, this is crazy. Like, how did you manage this? So that was also very cool. Cause again, he was just a nice guy and I wasn't really expecting it. You always expect the worst and then you'll be pleasantly surprised. That's what I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, I thought, I thought you, what you mean, um, you know, when you go out on stage and when you're finished the gig and like the build up before these big events, you're obviously consciously and subconsciously getting yourself ready. Um, your body's probably going through certain methods and certain systems, whether you realize it or not. How do you feel after these events, say the big events that you're emceeing or even you're, you're interviewing people at or whatever the case may be? Uh, how do you feel? Is there a massive come down? Do you be wrecked hard after it? Yeah, so I think it's, a, it's adrenaline, isn't it? And it applies to, it doesn't matter how big or small the gig is, there's a level of adrenaline there if people are bouncing back off you. Everyone loves to get appreciated and everyone loves to have that applause regardless of what it's for. Even if it's something on a day-to-day -day basis where your boss thanks you for something, you get elated by it. And you just multiply that by it 
couple of more thousand and then you get to that level of where it is so there is there is and it's 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 pretty rubbish but there's always this come down where it's like you're still elated you've got high blood pressure for like two hours after any gig regardless of what it is and you're excited about the fact that it just happened and you're you're stoked and you're speaking fast and all that kind of st- everything that you're like your heart is going 120 you're like this is it's crazy and then it's impossible to sleep but there is like it's not a crash afterwards but it just becomes second nature after a while you're like okay now it's over and now I can chill. And you're like, thank God that's, it's more of a relief more than anything else. Thank God that that is over. Um, so yeah, but, but I know people who, again, work in the industry where they are totaled after going out on stage and doing stuff. They're like, okay, I am, I am finished. I am toast. I have given it 110% because they, they do, they really give it like socks and, uh, and they're just wrecked after it. So I guess you're one of two things. Like for me, I finish work in the weekend. I normally finish at like half three, four o'clock. I'm probably not asleep until five because you're so well from 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 doing a gig um and and yeah so i think it takes some time to like wind yourself down and i only started like during covid i was like same as everybody you're up a height and everyone's on i think my like anxiety levels had gone so bad and then i just wanted to get home i just wanted to see my family and and this wasn't cutting it you know like a video call wasn't cutting it and i like everybody else was just like i will try anything that's not hard medication because i gotta get up at 4 30 in the morning to try and, and get myself off this height. So I started doing meditation and I was so skeptical. I'm like, pile of rubbish. I'm not going to do this. And it really, really helped a lot. I'm like, this is really, it's taken me off a, a cliff edge. Like my blood pressure was through the roof every day for no reason. And it was only to do with all of this, like anxiety that everyone had about COVID and what was next. And when were you going to get home? And when were you going to get to see your parents? And were they going to be okay? And was everyone going to be fine? Um, Cause we, there was so much media scaremongering that was going on and some of it was justified. Some of it was not, but there was so much going on that you don't know what was going to happen. So I started doing meditation then. And now I still use it. Like if I'm just after finishing a gig and I need to like deprogram, probably mm-hmm. the quickest thing to do it, which does work. But again, I like, I'm fortunate that that's worked for me and for so many people. It didn't and for so many people back at home as well. It didn't. And so many people here that just weren't able to, to cope with the, with the anxiety of everything that was going on. And you know, it's, it's not, it's not easy, but, it's worked for me. I'm not saying it works for everyone, but I would have been skeptical beforehand been like, Oh, it's a bit too alternative for me, but it works. And if it works, I'd recommend it to anyone. 100%, 100%. And do you, uh, I won't keep you long more now. Do you have a certain morning routine? Because I know you're up at like half four in the morning, are you? Or something like that. Yeah. 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 So I I mean, I'll push it to five, five fifteen. Absolute. Luckily I've got a, like, I've got a, a parrot, an African gray parrot who like thanks to my parents like is like this so as soon as it gets any bit of daylight which is now obviously a lot earlier than it would be in the winter in the winter i'm driving to work it's still dark um he'll fly on onto like onto because I, I let him sleep like we're just do his own thing you know and he'll fly on and he'll go hello like really creepily into my ear so nothing wakes you up quite so fast as he goes he's just like comes over and goes hello and i'm like oh my god so that wakes me up with a startle. Uh, so when I, once I get up, if I'm not awake by 5.15, like I'm going to be late. Uh, once I get up, it's like two shots of espresso, granola, some yogurt, boom, straight into the car. And like, I'm really lucky where I live. I'm about, I think it's eight minutes to work. It's supposed to be 12, but for some reason I can do it in eight because I know exactly where the cameras are. Uh, so that's really lucky as well. Uh, and I'm there in no time at all. So show finishes at 10. But I think like, and, and this is one of those things that in work, I, f- I fall into this trap where they'll, people will schedule meetings. They'll be like, yeah, yeah, let's catch up at one o'clock. By one o'clock in the afternoon, like I'm spent, like your, your, your exhaustion levels after doing something like that for four hours, they no longer exist because you're switched on for four hours. Yeah. And you're like, you're not just talking, but you're constructing stories. You're, you're planning the show. You're doing competitions. You're interacting with callers. 
So it's four hours, but it's four hours where you speak every six minutes. And it's, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it, it really, you really leave this feeling like, like I'm drained, like I'm done. So I'll normally get back home after a quick, like I'll go to the gym for 11, 12 at the latest. If it's after 12, I'm like, oh, no point today. Um, get back home for one o'clock, have some lunch, and then straight to bed until 4 or 5 p.m. Back up again and work, which is, I think, five nights a week at the moment. Once we get into September, that's like six nights a week. And then on weekends, my schedule flips. So weekends, I, I have an afternoon show one day. And the other day, so I'm not up early morning. Um, I'll work from like 11 p.m. Uh, on one night through until like 4 a.m. DJing. So my weekends are a flip of my weekdays, basically. So it's, it's, it's discipline more than anything else. And if you don't, like it's about, if you don't get those things, like tick those boxes, you end up feeling rubbish. And it, it, it really, really quick. Like when I started in breakfast radio, the guy I was working with at the time was like, listen, give yourself six months, your metabolism is going to catch up with you and you're going to be the size of a house. And like every morning I was ordering sausage rolls, double, double lattes like to work with all of the fat milk, please. Cheese rolls, like you name it. Like I was like, give me everything. Like, cause you feel like you need that level of energy to function. Um, and, and he was right. I was like, I'm putting on so much weight. Like, this is crazy. Like, this is insane. So I think it was about that maybe four years ago that I was like, listen, I need to get myself like, I get it, some sort of a healthy lifestyle going here. So I started going to the gym and I was like, right, if I do this at least three, four days a week, at least I'll feel like anything that I eat is not going to feel as bad afterwards. And I think unless you have that level of discipline, you're not going to be able to maintain this lifestyle because you'll, you'll burn out. And I, and I still burn out. Like I still have to reset every couple of weeks or every couple of months. I feel like, right, I need to take about two or three days just to sit, chill, and completely reset and do nothing. And I find that difficult to do as well. I'm one of those people who I can't sit still for too long. I start going, going crazy, you know, start crazy. Like I need to get up and do stuff. So that's why I think COVID for me, luckily being able to leave the house and go to work meant that even if I was doing nothing, I could go to the studio and do some stuff. Even if I wasn't doing anything that was productive, I was still getting out of the house and going for a drive. And I was really, really lucky to have that because I think a lot of people that I know in the same field, like your mind is working overtime all the time and you're creatively coming up with stuff or trying to come up with stuff. So it gave us a chance to do that. But without being able to leave the house, I would have been going pretty crazy, I think. It's a parrot there. <laughs> downstairs. Um, He's downstairs. How do you, you know, you've obviously seen a lot of Irish people come and go and people from different um, backgrounds, different nationalities. Why do you think, or what do you think makes Irish people stand out and progress um, here in Dubai as they did in, in London and New York generations ago? Well, I think what it is, is this, this notion that we are very hard workers. Be it true or false or, or otherwise, I, I, certainly from my point of view, uh, my, my current boss had worked in Ireland for quite some time and he had this, uh, this preconceived notion that, that we're, we're very hard working. Like we are not scared of work. We will do whatever it takes to get the job done. And that reputation precedes us. And you see people who've done incredibly well, people who've been at Emirates, Dubai Duty Free, you know, people like Colin McLaughlin, people like Seamus Byrne, who, you know, have got Byrne Rental and started that over here. And like the Stalworths and the, the, the first Irish people to come here in, in the 80s and start off things here and start building the infrastructure around it. We just got this reputation as being, I guess it's hard workers, but also go-getters when it comes to it, like, and, and, and do it through anyway. And we do have this charm. Yeah, whatever anyone says, we have this unusual charm and, and people some seem to warm to it. Um, and again, I think the culture thing that we, our cultures melt a lot with the Arab culture and that works. I mean, that, that's just, that is invaluable in itself. 
there's this level of respect for your elders. There's this level of family being so important. There's this, you know, pillars of, of the community that you, you just kind of hone into. And that's what there's a lot of similarities. I think we do very well because, because we are that. And especially here as well, when I moved here, I think there was 6,000 Irish people here. Now I don't know what it's at. I last count, I think it was like 18,000 or something, but there was 6,000 and it was the, the, Irish community within that were even smaller again. That's 6,000 in the UAE, not, not just Dubai. Um, and the active Irish community was even smaller than that again. Like you could have a Paddy's Day ball with a thousand people at it and you could probably name most of them because everyone knew everybody else. So it was a very, very small, tight, close-knit community. And they're all, they were, a lot of them were the, the high rollers, the, 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 you know, the, I want to say forefathers to, to, to the Irish, you know, make, being over here in, in their droves working they've done incredibly well. And I think there's a reason behind that. And I do think a lot of us to do with our charm and just being easy to work with. Like, was, like I said, you very rarely meet someone who's a standoffish Irish person who, person who doesn't want to have a chat with you. Now and again, you do, but it's more often than not, they're just willing to chat. They're friendly, they're warm, they're genuinely concerned about what you do, where you're from and, 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 and what you're doing here. And half it's been overly nosy. The other half's just been wanting to, wanting to, wanting to have a chat. Majority of them, to be honest, are, are extremely helpful as well, um, you know, to, to generations that have come since. Uh, Jono, we'll, we'll finish it up now in a, in a couple of minutes, but can you compare the Jono who left Limerick 12 years ago to the person who's, uh, who's chatting to me here today? If you to summarise it. Look, there's been, I think it's been a journey of personal discovery. I don't want to use a cliche in this, like, but it really, really has. And... And also it's, it's been, as I said, it's been fortunate events that have happened. And I just think I'm intrinsically, I'm the same person. You change as regards to who you are, but I think that would have happened no matter where you are in the world. You, your outlook and your perspective on life changes. Your, how much you, I would have been somebody who as growing up would have cared a lot about what people's public opinion was of me and cared about what people, what people thought of me. And, and I think that is all still there. Like that's all still there. I still, and, and, most radio presenters are the same. I crave that like uh, affirmation from people. So those qualities remain the same. Like it's an attention seeking thing. It's the best way to describe it. It's like you're, I'm still an attention seeker the same as I was when I lived at home. That's not changed. But I think my outlook on life and my, my four, like when I left Limerick, I was like, let's see what happens for a year. Whereas now you become more, your mindset becomes like long-term where you're like, let's see about retirement or like, like how much calculation do I have to save in order to be able to retire at 55? You're, I think my mindset's just changed in regards to how I adult. And that's the thing that happened over time. Dubai hasn't, hasn't instilled that into me. Um, I'd like to think that living here has made me a bit more multicultural, which is nothing but great. But again, I think that if I lived at home, because Ireland is now so multicultural, a lot more so than when I lived there, I think that's also something that would have happened there anyway, but I certainly wouldn't have spoken. Like I work with nine, I think it's nine, there's nine radio stations, but I think there's about five different languages. So I can at least say like, hi, how are you? Like ask how somebody is, ask for like basics, have a basic conversation in, in so many different languages that I'm just thinking, I probably, I probably wouldn't be speaking much Malayalam if I was living back home at hospital, I don't think, <laughs> but I could be wrong. Um, and I think that that's something that here put into me is that this, this, this multicultural, our ability to like break down orders and discover that, look, it doesn't matter where someone's from intrinsically at the end of the day, everyone's looking for the same thing. We all just want the same. We're all here in Dubai just to live, work and enjoy our lives. And, and I think that that is certainly when I'm out on weekends, you meet so many nationalities, so many people, and we're all 
we all just want exactly the same thing. We all just want to be happy in life. And I think that that's something that you, you get here that it might be a bit more difficult to come by at home, I think at least, because we tend to hang around people who are in our own circles and not really, you don't, you don't mix it up as much as you do here. Mm-hmm. Here you're almost forced to do it. And it was a concern for me when I moved here. And I think I did that for about two years where I stuck within that Irish group, that Irish clan of not like not doing anything, just being involved in Irish things and Irish events and whatever else. And then you end up being just in that group and they're the only people that you know. And then you discover that there's all these other nationalities, all these other groups, all these other, uh, I mean, they're not minorities here, are they? Because there's so many of all, we're the minority here, Irish are the minority. And they just, they genuinely want to find out about you and your culture and your country. And, and you get to do that. And plus, as I said, like I, I kind of had that travel book young age, but I never wanted to go anywhere that was further than Greece. I thought that's very far. It's four hours. It's very far. Maybe, maybe we'll do Grand Canaria. That's about it. And now I'm like, where else can I go and see? Where else can I go and experience? Like, I just want to find out more about their, about cultures and different languages and different places to go and experience. And that's something I don't think I would have done here. They're two very, very, very different people from the person who moved to the person that is now. Also, I was fat then. Um, so that's also a slightly, I mean, it's touch and go depending on the month. But uh, I think, <laughs> I think we're very different people, but I'd like to think that intrinsically at the, at the base of it, I'm pretty much the same, I hope. Brilliant, brilliant. And I always finish the podcast with uh, this question I throw to my guests. What are two daily non-negotiables? My first one's coffee. It's one of the things, and I never drank coffee, by the way, until seven years ago. And I tried coffee in Atlantis. I'd never had coffee before in my life. I was always like, it smells disgusting. Why would I want to drink that? Coffee dessert. And my immediate reaction was, how is this legal? I was like wired to the moon for a solid five hours. <laughs> so when I worked in breakfast, I, and keep in mind, I was already working on breakfast radio at this stage and I still had not drank coffee. So I was doing breakfast shift as a producer with no coffee. Then when I discovered it, I'm like, this, this is how people get on with their day. Um, so you used to have tea or what was this? You used to have tea? No, nothing like water. I would drink water. All I, I, I don't drink anything but coffee and water. That's kind of it really, to be fair. And like a tipple now and again. So no, I, I, I never drink like no fizzy drinks or anything. So I would just be powered by water, which is phenomenal when you're up that early. So coffee is non-negotiable. Um, and then like, I, I always thought it would be like, oh, make sure you, like you get up or whatever at an early rate. But I'm like, I, I've, I've no longer think about that as make sure you get up an early time, make sure you, you know, have a routine every single day. Or I'm just like, do whatever is the easiest for you to do. If your routine is get up, go swim in the pool, go back to bed again afterwards for three hours and do that. If that's the thing that's going to make you happy on that day, um, is do that I am I'm fed by routine I like to have the same routine all the time because that's what keeps me going so I need to make sure that I do this I tick this box if I'm not here at this time you know I you know my, my day is not is not correct but I think during COVID and stuff I was like I've got all this free time with stuff to do and this is making me much happier than the stuff that I was doing that was so routine 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 so I've just kind of embraced that if it's going to make you happy, go and do it. If you want to go and do that, if you want to go and meet that person, ch- chat with them and talk with them and stuff, go and do it. Meet that friend. If you don't and you think that's going to be a, a bog down, I could not deal with that right now. Don't do it. You're under no obligation. You're an adult. It's one of the wonderful things about being an adult is you can make your own decisions and that doesn't really matter what people's opinions are of you. You can just biff it off. It doesn't really matter. It's, look, on, uh, on that note, we'll, we'll end it there. Jono, thanks so much for taking time out to come on Inside View podcast and best luck with everything going forward. Not at all. We'll be in touch. And uh, it was a real pleasure to chat to you. It was really easy to chat to you, which is always nice as well, because I've been asked to go on podcasts and I've always been like, oh, I don't know if I could be bothered. 
and I'm always concerned about how it's going to go. And uh, and I've not actually recorded one on Zoom, so this is the first time I've broadcast on Zoom, one that's not in person. So this was, yeah, it was it was easier. It was fun. I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Jono. I think his story and career to date has been extremely interesting and inspiring, and I hope you do take something from his journey. That is all for us on this week's episode, and as a result, it actually concludes this series. We're extremely grateful for all support over the last number of weeks through all the episodes of Series 3. In order to keep up to date as to when we'll be back, be sure to follow us on social media, either search and inside view podcast or on the ball team building. Again, thanks very much for the support. I hope you do take some inspiration from the guests I've had on and be sure to follow us on social media in order to keep an eye as to when we will be back. Till then, stay safe and remember cred on a fan. Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.